You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Lindsay Stewart, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee, where she writes and publishes on issues of politics, race, sex, and gender in the African-American philosophical tradition. She is the author of The Politics of Black Joy, Zora Neale Hurston and Neo-Abolitionism, published in late 2021 by Northwestern University Press, in which we'll be discussing today. Lindsay, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. I'm really excited to uh, talk about your book. I was so intrigued when I saw the title. I knew it was coming out. Uh, you're at University of Memphis. We share some uh, graduate uh, professor mentors. So I thought this, you know, I'll get this book. I'll, I'll take a look at it. And it is so much better than I even anticipated. <laughs> I think it is. I really mean that. I'm not just saying it. Yeah. It, is a, it is a fabulous book. I think it's so interesting at multiple levels. And in addition to being uh, interesting, and this is something that I think we'll get into in its own way in our conversation, it's a really important book. It's a it's mm-hmm. it's a singular book uh, around both the themes that you treat and uh, taking Zora Neale Hurston so seriously. So I just did want to start off by saying thank you for the book. I I, I was uh, so happy reading it and and so happy that you published it. Well, thank you for that. You never know how people are going to take your first book, so that was nice to hear. Well, that is, that's the problem when you, when you publish a book. I mean, yeah. who knows what people are going to say. Yeah. So let me ask you just to back up to, you know, the origins of the project. I wanted to invite you to reflect, uh, if you would, and sort of narrate uh, as, as you want, uh, narrate us into the project in terms of your own motivations. As you know, writing a book requires, you know, a wild amount of energy and resources and commitment. Yeah. And so we're always moved by something. You know, what was it that drew you to this topic, drew you to the themes and figures in this book? I think one of the main things that drew me to work on this and, and by extension work on Hurston was some of my own experiences of living in different parts of the country, being raised in the South, moving up North for, for college, coming back to the South, moving up again for graduate school um, to Penn State. There is a lot of back and forth across the Mason-Dixon line. And there are lots of, of things that didn't make sense to me um, that Hurston helped me make sense of. And one of the main things that Hurston helped me make sense of was how people were talking about, um, mostly Northern people were talking about Black life in the South. It just felt like the way that some of my my friends and colleagues of North talked about um, Black Southern life 
was like, you don't know what it's really like to live here, do you? Um, You don't really know how Black people in the South might actually be thinking about how to approach racism, sexism, these sorts of things. There's just this assumption um, that, or several assumptions that didn't seem to fit with how I grew up um, and what I know about my parents and ancestors and, and things like that. So it's really life experience that prompted me to write the book. Yeah, I like that. It's uh, the origins of projects in terms of their intellectual origins are one thing, but I do think like the heart origins of books. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's just a conversation with something uh, with somebody about something, and it sparks mm-hmm. it. Or that, as you were saying, this sort of discontent, which turns into a gap in mm-hmm. in an understanding of human existence. Because what you're talking about is is a gap of understanding in terms of region and race, mm-hmm. but it's also a gap in understanding, you know, the human person. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Herson is such an interesting person for you to take up. Um, uh, she, I mean, in some ways, is a deeply canonical figure in, in, in mm-hmm. African American studies and, and literature and perhaps even on the sort of margins of anthropology. But um, she's really just not written about as much as one might expect, <laughs> um, and certainly not in philosophy. So yeah. I want to ask you, you know, as a philosopher, and this is a, is, is a, a multivocal treatment of, of Hurston, but it is also a deeply philosophical text, yours. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious what, how you think giving a philosophical reckoning with or treatment of Hurston changes how we understand her as an intellectual. Mm-hmm. And then maybe alongside that, I don't know if 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 you, if you want to separate these, but you know, what is your understanding of philosophy? You know, how do you understand philosophy such that you were able to give this treatment of Hurston? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in graduate school, sometimes you meet that one thinker that's your your friend who helps yeah. you through the problems that you're you're thinking through. And alongside the, the issue that I was having in a, a more personal sense of, it's really, I feel like there's this um, disconnect with the way that um, people up north talk about Black life in the South. I also felt like there was a disconnect um, while I was in some of my courses, while I was um, looking at some of the literature in philosophy of race, it felt like a lot of the material um, on black life um, in these kind of more traditional philosopher, philosophy texts and you know, philosophy of race focused a lot on oppression. And I was desperately trying to find something that talked about black life when we're not thinking about white people or that isn't centered on, on white people. And Hurston kind of gave me a, a window into how do you do that? How do you decenter um, white people yeah. in your discussions of Black life? Why might why that might be important? Why that might be politically important? Um, and I think that part of the reason why she's not taken up so much in philosophy of race, um, certainly, but sometimes even just as a political theorist of race, 
is because she's not so interested in um, focusing on Black-White relations. She's more interested in focusing on how Black people relate to each other. And um, a lot of the material that we already have to work with, a lot of the figures that are already canonized, um, took a very different approach with focusing on how do we detail um, and understand the the oppression that Black people mm-hmm. are facing. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot about the other question <laughs> about philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just have to say just really quickly, <laughs> I have to say really quickly, I think that this is, this is one of the things I loved about the book is I do think philosophy as a discipline, trying to take up questions of race and racism, has struggled so much to even not just to decenter, you know, blackness as a production of whiteness or in relation to whiteness, but to even pose that as a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I'm fin- trying to finish up. Uh, I hate pandemics, by the way. Um, <laughs> I just can't get this done. Trying to finish up this book on Baldwin, and one of the sort of themes I keep coming back to is this phrase he has in. Um, I think it's many thousands gone where he says, you know, his interest is in, this is his phrase, the relation Negroes bear to one another. Yeah. And, you know, that is absolutely at the center of your book. And I think is what makes your reckoning with Hurston so profound because exactly that, what you were saying, Mm -hmm. it opens up for philosophy, this new horizon, which Mm -hmm. in African-American studies and, and sort of that approach you know, there's a place for it. It's sort of like a field that's diffuse, but you make philosophy have to look at that. So, you know, how does Hurston look after a philosophical treatment? And and also, how do you think about philosophy in relation, Mm -hmm. or such that you can read Hurston in this way? Mm. I mean, I see Hurston wrestling with a lot of questions that we claim we're interested in as philosophers. You know, she's thinking Mm -hmm. about, she wouldn't put it in these terms, but what does agency look like under oppression? What does um, what does freedom look like? I mean, these are fundamental questions that we think about in philosophy. The sort of the stuff that I'm interested in that she does with refusal touches on um, issues of consent that I would say come right out of the social contract tradition. Um, Hurston does have ties uh, to more canonical figures in philosophy. She loves Spinoza. Um, There is work to be done on um, how Hurston thinks about joy and how Spinoza thinks about joy. That wasn't my project, but there's work to be done on that. And so um, I kind of take for granted that these basic questions in philosophy regarding metaphysics, regarding um, agency in particular, that Black people had something to say about it and that the stuff that Black people had to say about it doesn't necessarily revolve around white people. Um, Mm -hmm. And Hurston allows me to to do that. I mean, as um, she was also an anthropologist, so she was able to actually have content for us to go and, and actually look at what does agency look like under oppression. Yeah. And that anthropological stuff is so important because of how deeply she links cultural production, mm-hmm. not just cultural production as like the big sort of world stage, but mm-hmm. everyday practices. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of like characteristics of Negro expression. She's just like, 
how people walk, how they dance, yeah. how they gesture, become questions of subjectivity. Yeah. Right? Questions, as you said, agency, right? That, that to, to use that word. And I'm really, I mean, I'm just so happy anytime I see that shift in what it means to think philosophically about a figure, yeah. you know, rather than like, well, here's how you talk about philosophy. Is it in this book? Well, then that's a philosophy book. But instead, <laughs> as you put it, like she's asking philosophical questions. And so that opens the space to think philosophically and talk philosophically, but it requires a different voice. Yeah. And that's why I think your book is so important in terms of its link between analysis and voice. I mean, you, you as a writer and mm. you as a, a analyst of text, reader of texts, <laughs> like go hand in hand. And I think in that way, it's responsive to, to Hurston's own practices mm. in writing. Mm. And that's good. I mean that could go wrong for so many of us. Writing is really hard. So the <laughs> idea really that you, <laughs> so the idea of writing well and responding to, you know, a world-class writer like Hurston, uh, I think you do it. I, I really do. It so helps that she was such a phenomenal writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where it could be inspiring and uplift your own writing or yeah. just lead you to embarrass yourself. And so luckily you did the former. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's, you know, I have that anxiety. I wrote a book on Vicente, who was a poet, and then trying to write this thing on Baldwin, and they're just such brilliant writers yeah. as stylists. I'm like, uh, yeah. So anyway, I won't start in on my own thing, but it's a, <laughs> it's its own kind of anxiety. Let me ask you about the title uh, and subtitle, um, which are, of course, really, uh, you know, really grab you just as you take a look at the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then with the title, right, it, you know, the subtitle, Sora Neale Hurston, very under-theorized figure, written mm -hmm. about, but under-theorized. And so this theoretical treatment, as you were talking about, is just, I think, super important. But the the title, The Politics of Black Joy, and then uh, the second half of the subtitle, Zora Neale Hurston and Neo-Abolitionism. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by this, with this phrase, The Politics of Black Joy. Mm -hmm. Right, and how mm -hmm. you link that to abolitionists or neo, maybe what the neo and neo abolitionist uh, mm -hmm. uh, is. Mm -hmm. So, because those are those those are such provocative phrases. They're clearly rooted in the kind of practices that Hurston had as a writer and as an historical figure. Mm -hmm. But they're also ideas that you yourself really, uh, you know, bring to the text. It's a two way street there. So. Can you talk a little bit about the politics of Black Joy as a phrase and how it's linked to this idea of neo-abolitionism? Yeah, so the politics of, of Black Joy, um, or just, you know, the politics of joy, part of what I'm, I'm trying to do with the title is highlight the um, political valences of Black Joy in the U.S., and I think it has a political valence because of um, the story I'm trying to tell about abolitionist discourse. So one of the things that I get out of Hurston, um, and it's important that she's writing at during the early in the Reconstruction period, um, and she's kind of got this a good sense of kind of where black writing um, has been and, and where it could possibly go. Um, and part of what 
you know, I'm pulling that from is her, her essay, Art and Such. And one of the things that I found in that, in, in that essay in particular is that Hurston thought that there was um, a tradition of Black writing that comes out of um, the period of enslavement where what we have to say about Black life um, was used in service of um, the goal of abolition, right? which on the surface seems great, right? We want <laughs> Black people to be free. Um, but there were certain norms of writing in that way. Um, and one of the, the norms of writing in that way was um, we have to highlight how much Black people are suffering under slavery. That's our, that was the main argument that people were using to, to highlight uh, that slavery is, is morally um, you know, wrong. Mm -hmm. And Hurston saw that even after the abolition of slavery, it seemed like that tradition is still the one that bears the most on black writing, at least when she was writing, was the sense yeah. that um, we still, when we're talking about black life, have to primarily talk about how much we're suffering under oppression. And that if we don't mention that, um, we run the risk of making people think that we're happy with our oppression. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, there is this kind of tendency to, you know, this abolitionist um, tendency to, we have to emphasize um, black suffering. And part of why abolitionists strove so hard to say, no, 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 Black people are really suffering is because in public discourse around the, the time of enslavement, there were people out there saying that Black people are happy with being enslaved. Right? Yeah. So um, there are political stakes involved with, with trying to, to um, say in the public sphere that there, there is some joy in Black life, especially in the South. So the landscape of public discourse in the U.S. for me is, is shaped by these two tendencies of we've got to overemphasize how much Black people are suffering um, or we kind of have to gloss over Black life um, and pretend like we're all happy. And in that landscape, I think when you get up on the national stage and say, Black people have joy, it does have political resonances. And hearing you talk about that, um, and I, I thought this throughout reading the book, it does make me, you know, because so much of what you were saying, you could have been saying about James Baldwin's critique of protest novels, mm -hmm. critique of Richard mm -hmm. Wright. Mm -hmm. And it just really makes me wonder, you know, how much, is it just Baldwin and Hurston sort of cross ideas, or is there a kind of he taken some of these notes from her unacknowledged because because <laughs> i think like he's he was so interested in thinking about mm -hmm. about the pleasure of being black mm -hmm. and not the mm -hmm. pain right mm -hmm. while also not you know account uh, also not discounting the pain you know as, as you said and you know he always gets quoted as like an, a figure of outrage mm -hmm. but not a figure of of this pleasure mm -hmm. um but Hurston is such a sustained meditation on exactly that theme. Um, yeah, right. and there are yeah there are periods where um, I guess sometimes people are more open to hearing 
that there's joy in black life, but certainly not during Hurston's time where um, lynching was really the issue that they were trying to deal with. And Hurston would just not write about lynching in her novels, would not write about lynching in her essays. She just, it's not that she wasn't aware of them. She, she knew about it. She just felt like um, to point it out or to focus on that, what does that actually do? Um, because white people know that black people are being lynched and trying to, to make white people outraged over it. Um, she just didn't think that worked. Yeah. And this, this struggle to make white people outraged over racism, I think she saw how that worked in the abolitionist period. That was what abolitionists wanted to do. They wanted to make um, their fellow white colleagues um, incensed over um, mm -hmm. racism. That's why they would tell you so much about the whipping post and about the, the auction block because they, they wanted your outrage. Um, but outrage only goes so far, I think with, um, I don't know. There's some uses for it, but I also just worry about um, what do we have to do in order to get people outraged? And I think for Hurston, what we had to do was show ourselves as objects of pity. And I worry about having to always be on my knees um, to yeah. get you outraged about what's happening to me. Yeah. No, this, you know, I mean, I, I, I like uh, these, uh, I like so much what you're saying because it, I mean, it draws out, you know, the thread, the, you know, the boldest thread of the book, but also you're really underscoring the, in the book and what you're saying, underscoring the, the consistent relevance of, of Hurston as a yeah. challenge, right? Not just has something to say to our contemporary condition, but as a challenge, which is, mm. which is a whole other kind of philosophical resource, right? Yeah. Resource that challenges our discourse, yeah. right? Theoretical, philosophical, public, political. Yeah. Well, let me change um, sort of time periods a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually just getting back to a part of the book that I really uh, absolutely loved, which were the interludes, or you call them scenes in the book. It's, you know, I wish more people, you know, would structure books around these kind of recurring, you know, interlude scenes. Uh, I think it just adds so much to the book. And in doing that, you know, they, those, those scenes break up the chapters with these, these short and, you know, really suggestive meditations on uh, Beyonce's Lemonade. So I'm curious what, in terms of the composition of the book, you know, its structure, what you wanted to accomplish with these scenes, you know, in terms of, of, of the structure of the book, but also its larger ambitions, you know, because it's not just a stylistic flair. It mm -hmm. is actually doing something to the way we think with you as we read. Mm -hmm. And I would just add into that, you know, what is... Is it, are you trying to also sort of bring Beyonce into the possibility, uh, at least in Lemonade, as, as a, a philosophical interlocutor in the book, but also in the future? Mm -hmm. Because it takes that, uh, takes that uh, you know, video album really, really seriously. Mm -hmm. It loops it through Hurston, of course, 
mm-hmm. but also treats it as a philosophical text itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, part of the inspiration for that came from uh, a text that deeply influenced me very early on, and that's Angela Davis's Blues Legacies of Black Feminism. Oh, I love um, that book. Yeah, that text just, I had never seen anyone take on um, blues women and do so much interesting philosophical work with it. I didn't know something like that could be done until I saw yeah. that book. Um, so she's definitely influenced, you know, even my my thinking about Beyonce and trying to take that album seriously comes from um, Angela Davis kind of doing that with blues women. And uh, I see Beyonce as kind of following in that tradition of, of blues women, at least with the, the Lemonade album. Um, one of the things that I was trying to do with those scenes, which you know, they were a risk, um, but I, I wanted to do it. So I just did it. One of the things that I was trying to do is I was very much so thinking about um, how would you teach this text? And it's a text that I, I do want to see taught in classrooms. So each chapter is, is uh, centers on a particular essay because I'm, I'm focused on Hurston's essays with drawing out her kind of philosophical insights. And I wanted to offset the chapters with an example of an emotional attitude um, that comes out of the the Lemonade album um, that kind of prepares the way for the argument that's to follow. So hopefully when people read the book, they get kind of a, a glimpse as to where I'm going with the chapter that's coming after the scene. And I thought that that was something that would be good for students as well with with reading and um, because the, the lemonade album is so concrete yeah. that um it's it gives you a, a good example of um the moves that i'm trying to make in the chapter yeah i, I mean it really has that effect and it's also you know, it really does allow you as a writer to to shift voice a little bit mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. it is true about i think the 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 scenes between chapters, um, it adds a dimension to any, whether it's the readability or teachability, mm. that's, that's visceral, mm. you know, because, mm-hmm. of, you know, there's something really, there's something very intense about lemonade and it yeah. is one of those things I like as a teacher, if you, if you bring up lemonade in a classroom, it's like, <laughs> yes. you don't have to teach anymore, you know? Um, <laughs> Hopefully that will be true uh, ongoing. <laughs> you got to make sure the children keep watching. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's already old. <laughs> I know. I mean, I remember when it first came out and going to class like, like a day or two after it came out and yeah. critical debates in black studies at Amherst College. And my students, I like sat down. They were like, can we talk about lemonade next class? <laughs> <laughs> and we did. And it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it really drew out of them real thinking mm-hmm. not just not mm-hmm. just it's cool she's beautiful she's so great it was <laughs> they, they thought really deeply you know yeah. about rage about wow. loneliness about abandonment i mean they had like so much mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. and you do that in the book you know you you yeah. as a as a obviously as a 
a mature writer instead of a classroom. But in that way, I, you know, for me, I will mm-hmm. definitely be bringing those to my classroom anytime. There's any Beyonce's lemonade becomes any kind of thing on the market <laughs> because it elevates the, yeah. the way we talk about it in really fantastic yeah. ways. Yeah, and there's there's so many um, interesting aspects of the the album that resonate with what I'm I'm trying to do as a whole with the book, which is shift how we think about Black life in the South. Um, I think Beyonce does it kind of visible. Um, in a visible way with the album, she's staging so many of these scenes around plantations and the things that she's doing um, in these scenes with plantations is totally messing with your expectations. Um, yeah. And I think in some ways you can you can see how Hurston did that with her writing. She liked to mess with people's expectations of what she was supposed to be talking about with Black mm-hmm. Life in the South. and. Um, there's a lot of deep resonances there with, with Hurston and Beyonce. So let me pick up on this sort of uh, theme of, of the South and Southerness. You know, when I sort of zoom out after reading the book, you know, and I was thinking about, you know, all the sort of levels of contribution it, it makes to the field, whether it's a theoretic, theoretical side of Black studies or of uh, philosophy as a discipline. You know, I'm sort of in both of those uh, myself, and the book is squarely uh, in, in, in both spaces as well. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is how you think this book uh, shifts or expands the canon of what we think of as African-American philosophers. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Hurston as a philosopher is the big accomplishment of the book, and it's the first to do that, and it mm-hmm. will you know, will be impossible for anyone to not take her. <laughs> I really mean it. That's the effect of the book. Yeah. It's here. If you don't think she's a philosopher, then you haven't read the book or you haven't thought enough about her. I mean, I think you, you yeah. absolutely established that. Yeah. But one of the things I thought about the book, both in terms of its, of its disposition and sensibility, but also, of course, its themes and the figure at the center of it, Zora Neale Hurston, is it's, the, the, the book and Hurston are so committed to Southerness. And so I wondered if, you know, if that Southerness of African-American philosophy, like that mm-hmm. as either a, a split in the idea of African-American philosophy and, and the philosophical tradition, um, or maybe just even sort of branching off as a whole new way of gathering thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the things mm-hmm. I, I, the reason why I brought this up is because I've had this, this, this paper idea for a long time. I just haven't had a chance to write it. And I teach Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois all the time. And obviously the way people organize that conversation is, is, you know, assimilationist or accommodationist and like revolution or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I I always would pitch it as, you know, Booker T. Washington's in the South. Yeah. And what it would means to write about liberation and agency and so forth in the South might be different than writing about it from the Berkshires and Harvard and the North. And so it's just kind of an intuition I had. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, maybe we should push this deeper and say that actually Southern African-American philosophy or theoretical writing. Mm-hmm. needs to be kind of either a subfield or some kind of division. Do, is that too taking it too far or do you think there's something to this? Um, yeah, there's something. There, I think there is definitely something something to that. I think that 
in the same way that we um, have take seriously class issues and um, gender issues as, you know, co-constituting what we think about with race. In the same way, why not Southern identity too? Why not consider that also um, one of the, the tensions in African-American thought? Um, and why not start tracing thinkers through that? It would look different if you contextualize Booker T. Washington as being from the South and, and kind of what that would, would mean for you know, how he thinks about liberation. It also, I think, would affect how you think about Du Bois as well. Um, and I think that there, there, there are reasons to consider a person's regional identity as also shaping how they think about liberation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, this is, it, it also made me, uh, well, first of all, that when I was asking that question, I was thinking about how you preambled uh, you know, the book or introduced us to how you came to the book, which was this is a Southern ex black experience, which mm -hmm. is just fundamentally different than what I'm seeing talked about. Mm -hmm. And that's a sort of, you know, is it just a sort of um, getting the picture right? I don't think so. I mean, sensibilities and mm -hmm. ways people make meaning, that's what philosophy is about. So when there are mm -hmm. these differences, mm -hmm. I, mean, shoot, if, I mean, if we can make such radical distinctions between the French and the German in philosophy, <laughs> right? Uh, between the Irish and the, the English, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Then surely we can take this kind of thing seriously, right? Yeah, Other, I mean, the, the cynical side of me is, is thinking, I mean, we just got Black people in the discipline of philosophy. and That's a good point. That's a great point. <laughs> like, like trying to introduce these distinctions. I don't know if people know what to do with them. But um, I think this is how African-American studies is just so much further with stuff like yeah. this, because um, it takes for granted that there's a, so many um, complexities to black life and um, we're not all the same. <laughs> and yeah. really where you are from does affect how you think and feel about um, the world and how you move through it. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's the, also that part of me that I think is being drawn in by, ooh, let's, let's put this distinction to work really extensively is maybe also forgetting uh, philosophy, as you said. <laughs> that's a, that's not a, that was not an, uh, not a, not an, ex, like a fun, you know, yeah. point to make, but absolutely actually crucial. To, like, <laughs> like people just got in the door of philosophy and philosophical, uh, you know, book series and publications. But yes, so you should eventually come over to, to my side of academia. <laughs> uh, African-American or Black Studies. So you mentioned Du Bois. Um, so let me ask you about Du Bois. Of course, it, you know, in Black Atlantic thought generally, but certainly in African-American thought, there's no more canonical foundational figure, right? Mm -hmm. you know, whatever one thinks of Du Bois, you know, he makes in some ways the idea of the African-American intellectual tradition possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are multiple ways that Du Bois gets talked about, you know, a lot of it rooted through, you know, his argument with Washington and his growing discontent and his move to Ghana and loss of citizenship and mm -hmm. these sort of big narratives 
about the meaning of black life in the United States, mm-hmm. right? And there are nuances and camps and interpretive strategies and all of that. But my favorite chapter of the book was your chapter on Du Bois. Mm-hmm. And it, what I like so much about it was that it left me unsure actually how to think about Du Bois. <laughs> Next. I love that, right? Philo- we're both philosophy PhDs. Philosophy yeah. begins in perplexity. I, I've always loved that. And it left me in that philosophical space of perplexity as a reader. Like, how do I read Du Bois? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you think after your book, we should look at Du Bois differently mm-hmm. than maybe we conventionally do? It's funny because every time I talk to a philosopher who's read the book, it's always the Du Bois chapter, <laughs> which, you know, it kind of- He's the one sense. everybody knows. <laughs> I, I wrote it, that specific chapter, the target audience is philosophers, so I'm glad that it landed. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Just, I, I feel very uh, exposed, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No. I'm just glad other people <laughs> responded that way too. Okay. Uh, I'll just start off by saying I love Du Bois. He's he's such a fierce thinker, and it was great to wrestle with him in this way. Um, and you know, Hurst, I focused on early Du Bois because I think that's the text that Hurston read was Souls of Black Folk. Um, and there's you know same textual evidence and and stuff in her letters that suggests that she at least read the souls of black folk. And um, she would throw a lot of shade at Du Bois enough to make me think there's something there. I need to work through this. And the thing that I would like people to walk away from with that chapter is a sense that even, (laughs) even Du Bois can be regionalized and that we should not take his depiction of black life as the end all be all definition. Um, Even with something as simple as um, the concept of double consciousness, which we teach all of our students, which um, is so foundational to, to black political thought. Hurston would say not all of us experience double consciousness and not all of us experience it at the same time or in the same way or, um, there may be spaces where you don't experience double consciousness at all. And um, that critique of Hurston, I think, comes out of a sense of understanding how Du Bois is part of the abolitionist tradition. And that in some ways she provided um, some of the the greatest innovations of the abolitionist tradition. he sees himself as inheriting some stuff from Frederick Douglass um, as a, a great abolitionist. And I think the task before Du Bois was, I'm writing this book. It's for a primarily Northern white audience. These are the people that I want this book to land with. They are motivated by abolitionist audiences. The people that are picking up this book were people who were for the abolition of slavery. So these are the arguments that work for them, but slavery has ended. So how do I make it still relevant to them? And I think that's where neo-abolitionism comes from, is that Du Bois figured out a way to make these abolitionist arguments still land with people, even after you know emancipation. He was able to, to see how 
Um, even though we're free, the legacy of slavery is still very much so present during the Reconstruction period. And he was able to link those things together. And he makes a really evocative um, use of these um, emotions like pity and shame. He's able to wield them and make people, you know, sign up for um, yeah. the struggle. So as much as, you know, he's someone I love to critique because I um, value his thoughts so much, but I do think he's wrong. <laughs> and it's okay <laughs> to love people that you think are wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, you know, the dominance of, of, of the color line, of double consciousness and the critique of, of, of Booker T. Washington mm -hmm. in how we think of and remember as theorists, philosophers, or I think even just readers generally of souls is mm -hmm. uh, it's never balanced out by the, the concluding chapter on the spirituals, mm -hmm. which is, which is where he's forced just by his theme mm -hmm. to take Southern black life seriously. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I also think about double consciousness, you know, just what you were saying is kind of just repeating what you were saying. But, you know, when I teach it, you know, the students have uh, multiple reactions, right? They connect to it. They, you know, they want to know who this girl was who didn't get the card. <laughs> who are her descendants? Let's go confront them. Um, but I do every once in a while get students who will stop and say, and I, I usually bring it up, but, you know, what about? You know, growing up in a uh, black in a world where you didn't even it didn't even occur to you to want to go give a calling card to a white girl. Yeah. Right. And what, what you know, what does that mean for thinking about double consciousness? And we've always had conversations. I mean, I have to say what I love about the chapter is it's like now I can actually to the teaching thing. There's actually a really great source in this book for understanding <laughs> like, the implications of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. As as you spelled out here, as as you were talking, and and the book gives uh, such detail. Is everybody you know? Everybody loves Du Bois. Some people are loyalists. Um, he's somebody I think anyone who does African American thought always has to contend with. And yeah, I do think that this is one of the most nuanced and um, really exciting engagements with Du Bois. That's why I wanted to ask you about, as well as I guess out myself as part of the philosophy. <laughs> Well, the boys, I gotta ask about him. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he's a powerhouse for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know I spent all those years in Western Mass, and so that's uh, that's his uh, his childhood place up in the Berkshires. Yeah. It's interesting to see his childhood home. It's actually this modest place you can just sort of drive by on the road. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. But let me ask you about the conclusion as well. Um, this was like a really interesting uh, turn that you made in the book, really unexpected and really exciting, which was to speak directly to the pandemic, speak directly mm -hmm. to COVID-19 and asking critical questions about our public discourse. So, I just, you know, that's such a, and I wonder how many books actually are going to be published in the next couple of years. Right. <laughs> Right. I, and I hope there are, because yeah. it was so interesting to me. I didn't expect it. I didn't know what was to come. And I thought it was just a, 
really exciting conclusion. So what are you up to, you know, and what, what led you to think, like, let me conclude this book on Zora Neale Hurston with a reflection on the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're living, we're living through it. And um, I found myself incredibly frustrated with the news quite often. And I figured maybe there's a way that I can can kind of put my own concepts to use with with diagnosing what's making me so frustrated with the news. And it was, what was frustrating me was the sense that at least when they were covering um, surges of of cases in the South in particular and in Louisiana, there's almost a sense of inevitableness, like, um, and the sense that it's it's because of our cultural background that we're doing things wrong with regards to the pandemic, and now there are these surges. And um, the thing that really got to me was uh, the the news article on Mardi Gras and how Mardi Gras um, caused all of these um, spikes in cases in New Orleans and. I just thought, and I was like, well, wait a minute. Most of the people that are there <laughs> um, to cause this surge are, are from New York. Like the the, um, and they found out later the the strain of the of the virus that kind of took over in New Orleans during that huge spike was from people from New York. And you know, it's like, why aren't we talking about the ways that? Um, the South is represented in public discourse such that people always want to come down to the South to have a good time um, and totally warp this cultural tradition that we have of, of Mardi Gras. It's not just a big party. It's, it's part of a, more of a Caribbean um, sure. thing of carnival. Um so I was trying to diagnose some of those things of why are we being represented as if it's our cultural practices and in, in, in particular practices of joy um, that caused the downfall in the South, especially when there were spikes everywhere. Um, it just happened at different times. And I still see this with the, with the news today of, they will name the states in the, the north where there are cases and they'll just say it's spiking in the south. And it's like the whole south, really? Like, and there's different states and different approaches that different states are taking to this. But um, that's kind of what I was, was thinking of. How can I apply these concepts to what's happening in, in public discourse with the pandemic? I really loved that. As I said, I was, it was unexpected in the best way. Like it caught me by surprise and made me see how much the book is about Zora Neale Hurston, about how the politics of black joy in relation to, to abolitionist sensibilities and thinking, right, alter mm-hmm. how we think about you know this person's discourse, but also about this broader discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's I think was the biggest surprise for me is to. It was like we were talking about 
the United States all along. Right. Yes. <laughs> As we were talking about Zora Neale Hurston, it sounds stupid to say, right? But but I really mean it. It caught me by surprise in that really great way of being like, you know, this has not been a a, a piece about, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, bits and pieces of lemonade and the African-American intellectual tradition. It's also about deeply held habits of discourse about aid justice outrage pity and so forth mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah fantastic surprise anyone who listens to this who hasn't read the book will already know how to be surprised <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that so let me ask you a question about readers um you know i don't know how you feel about people reading your book i always my saying is in my worst nightmare is that no one will read my book and my other worst nightmare is that someone will read my book <laughs> it's a little bit of a, of a little bit of a terrifying thing to put yourself out there and, and people read it but you know we write books and take that risk and, and but mm -hmm. readers will take away from the book what they want at some level but also as authors i mean we do write books with i i think always a hope that people will walk away with something. And I say walk away, I always talk about the difference between walking away with something where I think you carry yourself differently and a takeaway, which is like a little snippet or a saying. So in the deeper yeah. sense of like a walk away, what do you as the author of The Politics of Black Joy, what do you imagine or want readers to walk away with and walk differently after the book? Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope people are, are reading more Hurston. Um, there, there is just this month, no, sorry, last month, been a, a release of um, a collection of her essays, like just all of them. Um, I think it's called You Don't Know Us Negroes. I'm so excited about that. Um, and I hope that people are going to go look at her essays uh, themselves, they're short. They're they're. I won't say they're easy to read because I think she's a complicated thinker. But um, I think there's a good, a, a rich payoff if you give her the time. And I hope that I've convinced people to to give her the time um, and start looking at her work. I think in a broader sense, um, kind of outside of of an academic sense, I hope that. The book sparks some projects that aren't about how oppressed we are as Black people. I think that's needed, not just in academic sense, but also in terms of the stories that we tell in novels, in TV shows. I mean, I love TV. I watch a lot of TV um, and I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I see um, a storyline that's set in the South and when black people show up, it's all about our oppression um, yeah. as if there's nothing else to our lives down here. Um, so I hope in a, in a broader sense that it shifts the stories that we tell about black life in the South and that it's more complex. Yes. We're oppressed. Yes, there's racism. Yes, we suffer. But we also hope and love and strive and use Hurston's words, think of a thousand other things um, besides white people. 
I love that. I, uh, I think it's hard to not walk away with that. And so for me, the more eyes on it, the better, because, you know, what you're describing is just, you know, let's not forget black people are human beings, right? Because no one has ever, 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 you know, what they are in the eyes of, of a group or, or, or another. And, um, but it, the endemic character of what you're talking about, whether it's on television, in philosophy of race, uh, you know, abolitionist discourse, it just has a real hold on us. And this mm. book really breaks us out of that. Yeah. So what about what about you? Let me return the question to you. You know, how do you walk away from this project? And I mean that, like, how did the writing, research and writing and thinking through the book change you as a, as a writer and thinker? Um, and also, you know, if you want to, next projects. I mean, I, I hesitate to ask about next projects because you have a right to exhale. Like, I published my book and I'm going to live a little bit uh, without thinking about next projects. So I don't really mean it necessarily that way, but you may, you know, obviously if you want to talk about it. But, you, you know, you undergo a transformation as a writer as well during the composition yeah. of the book. I wonder how you walk away differently. I mean, I didn't know that I could read as much as, as – um stuff that I did in such a short period of time. Um, that was something new. There was so much that I had to read because it's an interdisciplinary text. So there was debates in other disciplines that I had to catch up on very quickly. Um, so I do think I learned some skills with just reading, <laughs> just basic reading with, um, with writing the book. It was also... Sometimes it's really hard with publishing. I know that a lot of people, with when they submit things to journals, they get the classic reviewer too, and then it's you know people feel devalued and it's just you know a struggle. It didn't feel like that with the book, and I don't know if that's just this is my first book, so I don't know if that's just something with book writing or maybe I got lucky, but working with the reviewers was very rewarding that was um they really wanted to see the book out and the suggestions they gave it really improved me as a writer um so whoever was out there doing that service like it was <laughs> it was needed and it i grew a lot from that um i am thinking about a next project <laughs> yeah um, and it's more working along the lines of some of the stuff I was saying about root work um, and refusal. And like everybody, I'm thinking about the pandemic and trying to make sense of, of, of all of this. And I find myself turning to conjure women and trying to think through what must it have been like to navigate pandemics during their time? Yeah, wow. But also, some of the Black feminist figures that we rely on a lot also live through those times. So I'm also thinking, you know, how did living through yellow fever shape Ida B. Wells? Or how did living through the Spanish flu shape Zorna Hurston? Like, so those are some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about. It's currently you know, tentatively titled Fever. <laughs> so it'll, it'll be a little while, but that's what I'm working on. <laughs> 
I love that. I, I, you know, you know, you're clearly in terms of thinking and writing like an exceptional uh, person, but also that kind of theme. Having read this book and hear you talk about the themes in the book, um, uh, I can't wait to read that project. So hurry up and get it done. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank Lindsay, you. I, I really appreciate you taking time to talk about your book. Um, it's so important, and um, I look forward to more and more conversations, both listening in to people talking about it and uh, also crossing paths uh, with you in the future and seeing where these ideas develop for you. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too.